So uh, let's see. We are going to read Ruth 1. Um, In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine, famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and his two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Milan and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah, and when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. But about 10 years later, both Milan and Kilion died. And this left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back to your mother's homes and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye and they all broke down and wept. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes, for I'm too old to marry again. And even if it were possible, and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. And again they wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her sister-in-law, look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. So the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire time, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The women asked. Don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the young Moabite women. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Christ Central Church. My name is Josh Kim. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central Church. We're glad you could join us this morning. And if you came to our church this morning expecting Corey, our musical director, to lead us in time of worship, as well as Pastor Omari to preach, I'm with you. I was expecting them to do that as well. Um, Unfortunately, as you can see, both are not here. Uh, They're all sick. Some things are going around for sure. Thankfully, they're better. 
praise God for that. But more importantly, they will covet your prayers. Um, and please not only keep Corey and Pastor Mari in your prayers, but also for the Gastons and the Hills. As you know, things get passed around often easily in the family. So let's keep them in our prayers, shall we? Amen? Amen. Please pray for them. Um, so here I am this morning, um, back again, and we're back in the Woman of Christmas Sermon Series. And today we come to the story of Ruth. As we see in the genealogy, Matthew chapter 1, it reads, this is the record of ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, descendant of David and of Abraham, and jumping down to verse 5, we saw last week, Simon was father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. So we come to Ruth today, and Ruth needs no other introduction, Right? You all know her, you probably heard so many stories. Perhaps outside of Mary, she's like one of the most well-known figures in the Old Testament. She's often discussed as the mother of, great-grandmother of King David himself, the great woman of faith, and we love, love her and her naming our children after her. Um, but as we unpack the story of Ruth this morning, as we read this chapter 1 for us, we realize that Ruth's story actually begins with significant losses in her life. A loss of her father-in-law, a loss of her brother-in-law, and a loss of her husband. And through all that she goes through, we see in this story, not only losses that she faces, but the challenges of living as a Moabite woman, a widow in Israel. We see God working through her not only for her to be a part of this great genealogy, but also point us towards Christ. So I invite you this morning on a journey as we study Ruth and her life, woman of Christmas, and how she points us to the hope of Christmas. But first, what we see as she points us to Christmas hope is the daily struggles that she's facing, the daily struggles of Ruth and her family. As you see, the story begins with a certain family in Judah, we are told, a man of Bethlehem who decides to move out of Bethlehem because of severe famine to go away from this land. Verse 1 says, In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with them. We find that Ruth is actually a part of a story of Naomi. Naomi, by meaning pleasant, her and her husband is leaving this town of Bethlehem to go away to Moab to survive a famine that they were facing. But as you and I saw earlier, anytime you try to go away from land of Judah or land of Israel, away from the promised land that God gives Israelites, you often expect problem, trouble. So if you're a careful listener of the story, you recognize immediately, oh no, oh no, why are you going away? I get there's famine, but don't go away from the promised land you worked so hard to get to, right? And that's the case with Naomi. You see, she experiences not only a loss of her husband, but her two sons within 10 years span. And we saw time and time again for women in that time whose lives depended upon the husbands or their sons, this not only meant that they lost their significant others and their children, this also means that their livelihood is at stake as well. 
Without any male figure who will care for you, provide for you, we see Naomi is headed towards life of despair, but also potential destitute here. So upon hearing that there is good things happening in Judah, she decides perhaps it's a good time to go back home. It may be better to go back home with the people that she knows. It sounds at least God has blessed the land. There may be some leftovers, scraps that she may be able to get. So they return to the land where she belongs. That's where we pick up in verse 6. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland with her two daughters-in-law. She set out from the places, place where she had been living. They took the road that would lead them back to Judah. As they're on their journey, perhaps they saw a signpost that said, Judah, five miles this way. Right? Welcome to Bethlehem County. Here at this moment, Naomi turns to the daughter-in-laws and tells them, now go back. Go back to Moab where you're from. Verse 8. But on the way, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, go back to your mother's home and may the Lord reward you for your kindness, for your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye and they all broke down and wept. And we expect them to go back. Remember, these are the only close ties that Naomi has left afterwards. Who especially left behind their extended family in Judah, right? Perhaps their bonds with their daughter-in-law, her daughter-in-laws were deeper because of the losses they experienced together. All three widowed, but Naomi is encouraging them to go back. Two people perhaps she shared the most intimacy with She's telling them to go back. You can almost picture a heartbreak, right? Not only for Naomi, but their daughter-in-laws, seeing their aging mother-in-law who have endured through unimaginable sufferings together. So you may wonder and think, why would Naomi want to do this? Why would she let go of two of the people that knows her the most and tell them to leave? Well, Listen to what Naomi says in verse 11 when they initially say, no, we want to go with you to your people. And this is what Naomi replies in verse 11. Why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? That was the custom at the time. If their husbands died, they were in the family and they were to be provided um, husbands. We saw that with the story of Tamar. And Naomi says, no, my daughters, return to your parents' home, so I am too old to marry again. And if any were possible and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you. Her name Mara, later age, she names herself, means bitter. Because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. You see, that it's not that she wants them to leave, but she thinks for them, and this is the best possible future for them. Knowing what unbearable suffering they went through, knowing that more suffering of life is coming ahead. What future do these Gentile women have in the land of Israel? After all, they're outsiders. Not only women without husbands, but also Moabites. Would they have someone to remarry? Probably not. A Gentile marriage was frowned upon. They surely would have more chances and future in Moab where they're from. And the scripture reminds us there were young widows 
they could marry, their life was still in front of them. Their chances of starting over in Moab in the eyes of Naomi was a lot better than for them to go to Israel where there's no guarantees, but just life of suffering and hardships that comes ahead. Unbearable pain we see in the heart of Naomi. A long-suffering, unexplainable event to a point where she questions and doubts why would God allow this terrible thing and the pain to happen in our lives? Why, God? Why would you do this to me? Is the heart, the cry of Naomi. This is the story of Ruth. And that's why I love this story, church. I love Ruth's story and Naomi's story, not because it will turn out better. We like that, of course. Not only because God will do amazing things in their lives and they get to be part of this great story of Christmas. I get that. But I love this story because their story is so real, isn't it? It is so relevant to us. The real struggle of everyday life is on display here. Can you relate to that? Do you hear the echoes of your personal struggles and the pain that you and I all go through? The loss of close loved ones, death that stings, the illnesses that take away from our daily chores and turns them into daily burdens, the burden of living, making payments, pinching pennies, running around to provide for the family at the fear of losing that, loss of relationships, shame and the guilt of choices that you and I have made that plague us year after year after year, unexplainable causes of pain and suffering, wondering why is this happening to me, to my family? Was I born with this curse upon my life? As Naomi laments in verse 20, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. She responds, instead call me Mara, for the Almighty has made my life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi pleasant? And the Lord has caused me to suffer, and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me. Facing the reality of life, it's all here in the first chapter of Ruth. And if you're in that boat this morning, welcome to the story of Ruth. Welcome to church. Welcome to Christianity. Welcome to the true story of Christmas story. As we have seen with the woman in Jesus' genealogy, life being hard is an understatement. The woman we saw faced all kinds of challenges, the losses, pains, and sufferings, hurts, and Ruth is no exception to the story. This story tells us again that our lives will throw challenges at us. Death, sickness, illness, losses are all part of living in this fallen world. And those who follow Christ, those who are in the promise family of God, it is still no exception in this side of eternity, isn't it? Suffering is not an exception. It is almost always expected out of many of us. I was speaking to one of our elders who is leading our Advent devotional time using the Carol of Comfort. We still have books available if you want to pick, up, pick that up. This past two Sunday mornings, and I asked him, how did it go last Sunday? He simply said, the topic is deep. 
It's hard because our struggles are so real. We all have them. It's so hard to go deep because it's so rooted. We pray by using one word that captures what we are going through to start, and we have all the words to describe hardships we're going through, you know? In addition, you know, we have our red chairs where we encourage you to come and to pray, to share, to be prayed over. Many of our leaders often tell me as they walk away from these red chairs, they walk away with tears, heartaches, questions also, not knowing what God is doing at a time in our daily struggles that life throws at us. And I believe that's where many of us are this morning as you come to this church. You may not physically come to the red chairs, but we all know that where you're sitting, perhaps you're in the spiritual red chairs, wondering what is God doing in my life? What is all this suffering all about? When will this end? And what this story reminds us is that God sees you. That God sees me. That God sees all of us in our spiritual red chairs. What God does through the story of Ruth is telling us, by writing this story, this story about this one family in the grand narrative of God's story is to tell us that God sees us. And God knows us. And God does not turn a blind eye to your cries of mercy. In the problem of pain, the great writer C.S. Lewis called pain God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. He says, we can ignore even pleasures, but pain insists upon being attended to. And ever more so in this season, we're reminded through the story of Ruth and through Naomi to come to him with those pain and sufferings. Christmas is not just about celebration of joy of coming of Christ, but it's joy of realizing that God sees you and I. It is as much of hope of King who comes as much as realizing God comes to us in our sufferings in order to appreciate, celebrate who Christ is, right? You celebrate seeing doctor when you're sick. You must know why he comes to us. He comes to us because he doesn't want us to live, uh, be alone in our sins, in the pains of sin and consequences of the fall. He sees us. He loves us. Therefore, he comes. This story tucked away between Judges and Samuel. God is working in Naomi's life, certainly in Ruth's life. So invitation, again, is to come. He to God's call for you this morning to come with all your burdens, lay them down at the foot of the cross. This is what Ruth reminds us of this morning. But not only do we see the daily struggles Ruth shows us, but also daily obedience, daily obedience. At the crossroads of life and at Naomi's offer, we see the diverging path of two daughter-in-laws, right? Verse 14, and again, they wept together. Orpah kissed his mother, her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has come back to her people and to her God. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Whatever you go, I will go. 
Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. I don't know about you, but I get chills reading those confessions, don't you? A beautiful confession, perhaps one of the best confessions in all of the scriptures. I will go wherever you live, wherever you go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Doesn't that echo another promise that you hear throughout the scripture? That promise, that confession, references often to what God tells God's people over and over again in the scripture. Exodus chapter 6, Jeremiah chapter 20, you name it. When God says, you, Israel, will be my people. You are mine. I will be your God. This language that Ruth uses is a covenantal language, commitment language, clinging language. This echoes God's promise to Israel. Many theologians say Ruth probably heard this phrase as a Moabite. He doesn't, she doesn't have a chance to learn it. Where did she hear it? From the mouth of Naomi, her mother-in-law. Ruth, as a Moabite, listens to Naomi even through the difficult times that Naomi goes through. Perhaps out of the mouth of Naomi, even in suffering, Ruth remembers Naomi reciting and remembering that God's promise is not done yet. So when Ruth uses this language to cling on to Naomi, perhaps, just perhaps, it serves as a reminder for what Naomi used to remind herself of. So Naomi relents, and Ruth goes to Bethlehem with Naomi. So what happens for the rest of the story upon this beautiful confession that Ruth uses? Do their lives get better? Does Ruth find a way? Does God show up? For the sake of time, unless you're going to be here for three hours, to give you a quick 30-second recap of chapter 2 and 4. Don't you like that? Like, we're done, right? Okay, we're almost done here, guys. The story goes on to see that Ruth and Naomi settling in Israel. Ruth happens to run into Boaz while gathering the leftovers of harvest, which was customary for many that were in need at the time. And through a clever counsel from Naomi, Ruth basically offers herself and says, marry me. Right? And Boaz, through his also clever maneuvering, to be a kindred redeemer. Basically, he buys the right to marry Ruth, and they get married. And the story is chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth into his home, and she became his wife. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant. She gave birth to a son. Then the woman of the town said to Naomi, Praise the Lord, who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. And he does. Uh, May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. They do, for he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Naomi took the baby, cuddled him to her breast. She cared for him as if he were her own. The neighbor woman said, now at last, Naomi, the pleasant, has a son again. And they named him Obed, who became the father of Jesse, the grandfather of David, the king of Israel. Amen. We love that story, don't we? God delivers we kind of anticipate it too, don't we? Like, wow, great confession of covenantal language. Great. Chapter 3 and 4, amazing story of Naomi's fortune turning. Boaz is heroics. God's rescue. I always wonder, like, how come we don't name a lot of our sons Boaz, right? Like, Ruth, I get it. Naomi, but no Boaz? 
this amazing guy. Great, I want that too. God provided, end of story, let's go home, praise the Lord, right? That's what we want. Yes, that's part of Ruth's story, how God does show up. God does show up. God works all things for the good of those who love him, who is called according to his purpose. God will do that, absolutely. That's the story of Ruth. But I also don't want us to miss the journey. I also don't want us to forget about chapter 2 of Ruth. As Ruth and Naomi walks this path of trusting, perhaps that God will continue to provide, right? Sometimes we're full of questions with uncertainty, knowing that it's not like Naomi had this insight that Boaz will show up, right? They just go hoping against hope, right? But in chapter 2, before we get to chapter 3 and 4, Let's look at what Ruth is doing and what the scripture highlights for us in chapter 2. Chapter 2 is when Ruth and Naomi arrives in Bethlehem. And this is what it says. One day, Ruth the Moabite, chapter 2, verse 2 and 3. If you have Bibles, you could turn there. I'm sorry, I don't have it up here. So you could turn there on your Bible apps too. It says, let me go out into the harvest field to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it. Naomi replied, all right, my daughter, go ahead. Verse 3, highlighted. So Ruth went out and gathered grain behind the harvesters. All right, jumping down to chapter 2, verse 17, 18. Chapter 7, uh, verse 17 says, So Ruth gathered barley there all day. Verse 18, she carried it back into town. Jumping down to verse 23. So Ruth worked alongside the woman in Boaz's field and gathered grain with them until the end of the barley harvest. Every day, all day. Then she continued working with them through the wheat harvest in the early summers. And all the while, she lived with her mother-in-law. We love jumping to chapter 3 and 4 because we want to see the end. But there is a lot of time that passes chapter 2 where she is going out and gathering grain and wheat every day. And don't forget that one little detail that says all the while, she lived with her mother-in-law daily fulfilling the promise that she had. You see, every moment in chapter 2, we see Ruth working, 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 going out to gather the grain, gathering the barley. She carries it back, works alongside, continues to work, live with the mother-in-law, and that's what Scripture records. It's not a minor detail that gets to be tossed aside to say, well, this happened, and here we go. Ruth, the grandmother, great-grandmother of David, she is daily gathering, daily working, bringing food back. This repeats over and over, also that she can not only provide for herself, but also for her mother-in-law. Only in chapters 3 and 4, at the guidance of Naomi and Boaz, she's recorded to be doing something else. But all the actions leading up to chapter 3 and 4 can simply summarize, I believe, as Daily faithfulness. In gathering the grain and the food to provide for her aging mother-in-law and for herself. Daily obedience to her confession that she made. I will be to you until the death do us apart. Through the joyous times to the sad times. Through the plenty and in need. She cared for her mother-in-law in the land of her mother-in-law in a foreign land. 
It is further evidenced by what Boaz tells her when Ruth asks her, why are you showing your favor to me of all people? This was what Boaz tells Ruth in chapter 2, verse 10. Ruth fell at the feet of Boaz, his feet, and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness? She asked. I am only a foreigner. Yes, I know, Boaz replied, but I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. We see a glimpse of what it is to come through her daily faithfulness, obedience. This is further highlighted if you consider the context of Ruth. Remember how Ruth chapter 1 begins? It says, in the days when the judges ruled in Israel. You see, this was time in between Joshua and Samuel, right? And the judges rise to rule in Israel. If you have your Bibles or even your Bible app, you turn back to Judges chapter 21, and this is how the time of Judges are described as. Judges 21, 25. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. A picture of disobedience. Picture against daily obedience of Ruth. Direct opposite. People in Judges did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Ruth does whatever is right in God's eyes. Remembering God's promise to God's people in choosing Naomi, serving and providing her mother-in-law through seasons upon seasons, waiting patiently for the kindred redeemer to clear the next in line to marry her. Church, we often want to jump to chapter 3 and 4. I'm there with you. I want to too. We like it. I love it. Like, God will do this. Yes, God will provide. We like the end of the story of how God provides and how God rescues, and we tell the end of the story. Yes, we must remember that. We need that reminder. After all, it is the heaven we long for. We yearn for that. We're told of the greater Redeemer, Christ himself who will come and redeem us, who loves us, who provides us, who sees us, who tends to our wounds, who sees us. Yes, amen. We need that. And Ruth shows us that. Ruth definitely shows us that God does not abandon us. But do not forget the chapter 2 of Ruth in response to the grace of God that he shows us what you and I are called to do today. A person once told me the world seeks people who will do spectacular things in a short amount of time. But what God often seeks in the scripture is someone who does something small faithfully for a long period of time. Why? Because ultimately, what God wants is your character, who you are becoming. And isn't that what God tells us throughout the scripture in 1 Samuel 15, 22? Samuel replied, what is more pleasing to the Lord? your burnt offerings and sacrifices, or your obedience to his voice. Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice, and submission is better than the offering, the fat of rams. Even in the parable of talents, God rewards not because of the amount of talents one has, but because of one's faithfulness of that is given to them. The goal we see is daily faithfulness, daily faithful stewardship that leads to out of daily obedience to the Lord. That's what Ruth tells us. Lynn and I had a chance to share with Shallow Fellows 
um, this past Thursday on our journey and our story of how we came to Christ Central Church. And at one point, one of our fellows asked a question that I often get asked in my pastoral ministry. They say, how do you know that you could be in God's will, right? How do you know that? What is your answer? How do you know that you, could, you are in God's will today, right? Not only fellows who upon graduation from college is thinking of the next steps, asking these questions, but many of us in our daily life probably ask the same question. As we turn on to that computer and run that Excel spreadsheet for the thousandth time, taking that email for the millionth time, as we apply to their college jobs, as we go to our classes, take exams, changing the dirty diaper, we wonder the same question, can we, are we in God's will today? From our limited experience, we share with them, as I believe many gray-haired saints here in this room will testify to this as well, we wish it is as easy as God writing it on the walls or showing us through a talking dog that says, do this, or even flip through the scripture to land somewhere that it says, thus says the Lord, go north, invest in the cryptocurrency, or actually don't do that anymore, <laughs> right? But what we find is that God will take care of the unknown, right? But what I'm called to do throughout the scripture is to obey. And this doesn't mean that you don't plan and pray, but more importantly, you learn and still learning to walk daily trusting in the Lord and obeying Him. And if you and I can learn to do that in small things, you will find yourself in God's will because you are becoming more and more like Him. And if anyone could tell you that, Ruth will tell you that. Ruth's story includes amazing confession, but her story also includes daily gathering of grain. Ruth's story includes spectacular deliverance and changing of fortunes, but her story also includes unknown future, unknown outcome, and the real present danger that is only met by God showing up in her daily life. But indeed, her story includes God who declares to Naomi and you, you are my people, you are my beloved. To wrap up, I was thinking about women of faith that have demonstrated that walk for us. Last week, we, we looked at Rebecca Proton. Uh, mother of Black Reformation. Today we look at Ani Suk, more famously known by her married name, Esther An Kim. A woman of faith I came across this week, born in Korea in June 24, 1908, a year after the famous Pyongyang revival that missionary called Pyongyang is the Jerusalem of the East. But two years later, Empire of Japan annexed Korea, making it part of Japan for the next 35 years, and many occupied Koreans were forced to worship at Shinto shrines, praying to Japanese gods, dead emperors, and former war heroes. Those who refused were sent to prison. Esther Kim is known for her mission to this very people that she got persecuted by. In fact, when she got to Pyongyang, she met a stranger named Elder Park, doesn't have a name, Elder Park, who told her, God is telling us to go to Japanese people to proclaim God to them. Despite her initial hesitation, she felt this was God's call. When she got there, she preached, got arrested, beaten, spent the next six years in Japanese prison. It is here that God used her witness to many fellow prisoners of Christ's overwhelming love that made her a beacon of light 
in the darkness. What drew me to her testimony is not only because she embraced and loved the very people that persecuted her, it is not only of her amazing testimony, Paul-like life in the prison where her stories and stories are told for generations. It is not only because how God frees her and brings her to U.S. and helps her to plant the church, which still stands to this day. But rather, I love the story because she wrestled in obeying God's will in going to Japan. Upon hearing the elders call to go with him to Japan, this is what she writes in her hesitation. Lord, if you have truly chosen me to warn the Japanese government, prove it clearly to me. If the people suddenly stop and look at me in surprise, I will believe that you have given my face a special glow. Then I will follow your voice unto death and go to Japan. Opening my eyes wide, I watch the crowd walking by, waiting for somebody to notice me and to indicate by their look of surprise that there was a special glow on my face. But no one acted as though they saw me. I was trembling and coughing so much in the freezing cold that I could not lift my head and was about to collapse. When I got home, disappointed and shaking miserably, I burst into tears. Love the story because she journeys in her struggle and only by God's grace, through the word of the Lord in Ezekiel chapter 2, she learned to obey. I love that story because that's my life. That's your life. We love the story of obedience, but it is not only us that gets to choose to obey. It is God who brings that out of us, who draws that out of us in our daily struggle to believe and obey, obey in our weakened heart to test the Lord, the gospel of Christ says, I still come to you when you're sinners. I still come to you when you're rebellious. I still come to you when you're still disobedient. And I love you, I love you, and I transform you, and I draw out that testimony of obedience out of you. God of Isuk, Esther Kim, God of Ruth, God of Naomi, reminds us in this season of Christmas, the story reminds us he came, changed you so that you could respond to him in obedience. Woman of Christmas, let's pray, shall we? Pray with me, church. Pray that prayer. God, help me to overcome my unbelief. Help me to obey in this season I'm in. Help me to see Christ ever so clearly. Father, that's our prayer. In this season that we're called to live in, help us to see you clearly Help us to come, to have faith in the Lord who promises to us that you're not done with us yet. Lord, help our unbelief, help our disobedient heart. When we're faithless, you're faithful. May the Lord's will be done in our lives as it is in heaven and in earth below. Christ, let me pray. Amen.